week we spent a lot of time, I apologize for that, I ran over a little bit, we spent a lot of time in regards to talking about the foundation of spiritual warfare. The reality that we in this life are in the midst of the wilderness. That we are sojourners in a foreign land. And that there are enemies that seek our demise. There are things that seek to bring us down, to destroy us, that we may not make it to the promised land. And there is a reality in spiritual warfare. We learned last week of the the necessity of the spirit in the midst of spiritual warfare, that to be able to engage in battle that is not flesh and blood, you have to have the spirit of God. Next, we learned about the, the leading of the spirit regarding spiritual warfare, that God himself will lead you in the places that you ought to go so that the purpose and fulfillment regarding spiritual warfare comes to pass. The reality of spiritual warfare is to remove Egypt from you. That you step into these moments of testing of your faith so that way you're strengthened in it. That it is good that your faith is tested because it produces steadfastness. It allows you to be able to stand in the midst of it. That you know whenever you overcome those tests that you can continue walking forward knowing, Hey, I saw what the Lord did back there, so what more can I, you know, what else can come against me? He that is in you is greater than he that is in the world and allows you to continue moving forward. So the reason we sought the foundation of this spiritual warfare at the very beginning is because the reality is that Luke is displaying a beautiful imagery in the writing regarding the temptation of Jesus. That Jesus was dipped in the Jordan and has now been carried by the Spirit into the wilderness, fasted for 40 days, to be tempted by devil. To be tempted by Satan himself. Now, there's two parallels that Luke is bringing to our attention here. There's two parallels that he's bringing to our attention with this particular text. Starting in verse 1, all the way through verse 13. It's this, it's two, twofold. One, it's the imagery that he focuses and points our attention to the reality of the testing of Israel in Egypt. I'm sorry, at, at, at Sinai. Sorry, at Sinai. When Moses brought the people of God out of Egypt, the first place they went to was Sinai, to receive the word of the Lord there at Mount Sinai. Now, the language that Luke uses, if you notice, is that, he, the, that the Lord went up. Now, this does not mean up north. It means up in elevation. Jerusalem set at a higher elevation than the majority of the region surrounding it. So anytime you see uh, in Luke's gospel, uh, where anytime it says that Jesus went up, that is to indicate that he went up unto Jerusalem, up top. That same sentiment is also said of Moses, that Moses went up the mountain, and that he did what for 40 days and 40 nights? He fasted. Before he received the word of the Lord to deliver to the people. Jesus goes up, and we're going to see this imagery. He goes up, he's fasted 40 days and 40 nights, but he has the word of God. Not to just deliver it to the people, but to overcome the enemy. To use it so that way it does not claim or overtake those who are going to be in him. We're going to see that later. And the second parallel that Luke is pointing us to is the temptation in the garden. The language that is specifically used in Luke's four texts 
follows in direct parallel that Satan uses in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. The same progression. He's pointing us intentionally to this. Because Christ does not just simply seek to just gather the authority of all the kingdoms of the earth, as we will see. He is going to the cross to redeem him back to himself. Paradise lost means paradise redeemed in him. He is trying to get us back in communion with God for eternity. Where Adam fell and Eve, where they fell, Christ would overcome. Christ would defeat. He would not be swayed. He would not fall in the midst of this moment. So with that being said, I want you to showcase this, that Jesus is seen in this moment, the second and greater Adam. When Adam and Eve fell into the temptation, Jesus would overcome. So let's turn to Genesis 3. Genesis 3. And I want us to walk through the fall. But I want us to walk through the fall with Luke 4 in mind. Remember, if you want to keep a finger in Luke 4 and turn to Genesis 3, that's fine. Or if you want to remain in Luke 4 and look up on the screen, that's a good idea too. Because I want to showcase how Luke is writing this temptation in parallel to Genesis 3. So let's dive into Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. There's the first parable. Did God not actually say that you can eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes were both opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the, God, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees uh, uh, of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. So where was his blame? Your creation caused this problem. You did this, God. You gave her to me, and she caused me to fall. So, let's go back to, let's see what the woman has to say. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent, serpent, deceived me, and I ate. So they both said, God, you're the problem. 
Your creations caused this issue. How can you blame us? You should have created them. Continuing on. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now let's pause right there for a moment. The term dust there is the same word that's getting ready to be used to describe what we go to when we die. The term dust doesn't mean, oh, he's a snake and the dust is going to be in his face because he slithered on the ground. No, no, no. He said you're going to eat of death the rest of the time that you exist. That your curse is that you are going to eat of death all the days of your life. That no life will come to you. The only thing that you're going to get is the dust of the afterthought of life. And that's what you're going to receive, O serpent. Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, curses above you, all life stuck on these, on the belly you shall go, dust you shall eat up the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. You desire, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And Adam, to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth from you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. The man called his wife Eve. His wife's name Eve. Because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife. Garments of skins. And clothed them. The very first mention of death. In the scriptures, is to clothe the sinful ones. Hmm, I wonder where this story is going. Well, we know. But do you not find that fascinating? That in the midst of the garden, in the midst of sin, that Adam and Eve completely botched God, even though they tried to cover themselves up, God clothed them. He was the one who would provide. The clothing, the covering for them. Which is a huge testimony of the gospel. Let's continue on as a side note. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man was become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now let me ask you a question. Does that mean that mankind has become like God? No. The, pre the, the next section when it says, like one of us knowing good and evil. That means that that particular moment when sin entered the world, mankind said for itself, I will determine what's right and wrong. God has given commandments, but I broke them, and now I'm going to do what I want to do. I will determine for myself what right and wrong is. And we see that happening every moment of every day in our lives. It doesn't take but five minutes on Facebook to realize that we're still eating of that tree and loving it. It tastes good. 
We are defining for ourselves what right and wrong is. We do not become like God. We are infinitely dead. But the way we became like God is because we call ourselves God to determine what right and wrong is. And that's where we find ourselves. Now lest he reach out, now God, uh, now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man in the east of the garden of Eden. He placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every which way to guard the way of the tree of life. Mankind had become cut off. There is absolutely no way that we could enter the garden again on our own. No way. It would take something miraculous. It would take something of infinite value, of purity and righteousness to even walk through the flame again to even get back to the tree. We can't do that because we're infinitely tainted by sin. We all eat the fruit every single day. We all define for ourselves through the midst of temptation, of our own desires, that we decide to pick from the tree. And then we're ashamed afterwards. So we try to cover it up. We're still eating from that tree this day. But that does not mean that that tree separates us or kills us anymore. Because those who are in Christ Jesus, he's overcome death. We're new priests. We're going to see that here in a little bit. But here's the three parallels that, that Luke is defining in this moment, in the fall, that we're going to see in Luke 4. One is that the appeal to the fruit of the garden. So the first, not yet, yeah, there you go. The appeal to the fruit of the garden. Appeal to the fruit. So the very first thing that the serpent looks at Eve and says, hey, how about that fruit? Didn't God say you can eat of all the fruit? All the fruit of the trees? Didn't he not say that? So the very first thing is he appeals to the fruit. The lust of her eyes. He appeals to the flesh. Second, whenever that didn't work, he appeals to authority at that point. That's the second one. He appeals to authority. Wait. You will not surely die. God knows that if you do this, you'll become like him. So what authority is he? He's holding out on you, Eve. You can be your own authority. You can define things for yourself. You don't need him. Take and eat. And it was at that moment that she decided to go and eat. That Adam went to go and eat. They both fell at that moment whenever they realized that they could become like God and define things for themselves in the midst of God's creation. That's they were like, oh yeah, that's the stuff. I only know Eve and myself and God. And if I could be like that guy, oh yeah, that's what I want. And lastly, this is the parallel. Nature has changed. And there is a sun coming to crush the head. There is a sun coming to crush the head. Which is why we're going to see in a moment why Satan even asks the Lord, Well, if you are who you say you are, go do this. 
The very last appeal that he has is, cast yourself off here, because you know you're going to be protected. Adam and Eve didn't get that far. They didn't get to appeal to nature. But Christ was not only going to appeal to nature, but he also reveals who his nature actually is. And that's when Satan flees from him. <laughs> so, and lastly, humanity has been locked out. Humanity is being locked out, and we need a way back in. We not only have to overcome this issue of temptation, but we also have to over overcome the reality that there is a flaming torch guarding the tree of life. And there's going to have to be somebody who is willing to go through that flame to redeem us, to be able to get us into paradise once again. To redeem us back to the garden once again for all eternity, that we could partake with the tree of life for eternity. Because we can't do it. So someone was coming who would redeem us. So this is the main thing. This is the main theme of today's. If there is anything you catch out of this. Is that Jesus restores paradise for all who are in him. As he secured all who are born again through him. Uh, due to the sin of Adam. Or deal with the sin of Adam and alive in Christ Jesus. Uh, Right, oh man, let me just read it from my own text. I've mistyped it there, I apologize. Jesus restores paradise for all who are in him as he secured all who are born again through him. Dead to the sin of Adam and alive in the righteousness of Christ. Jesus is the greater Adam who overcame the power of temptation for us. Overcame the power of temptation for us. So today, I'm going to showcase to you what it is that Luke is showing here in Luke 4 regarding the temptation of Jesus. Why it's important that he did it and what it means for us in regards to our own temptation. So number one, number one, the appeal to the flesh. The appeal to the flesh. This comes from verses 3 and 4. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. So at the very end of Jesus fasting for 40 days, he was very hungry. So the very first thing Satan chooses to go after is his flesh. You know you're hungry. Why don't you get something to eat? Prove to me who you are and you'll do it. Get some bread here. This is the very first approach. And this is exactly what he did to Eve in the garden, is it not? Hey, look at that fruit. Did he say you can't have it? Didn't he say you didn't have all of the fruit in the garden? So his very first appeal to Jesus in temptation is to the flesh. Now I'm going to tell you something. Most of the time that temptation really comes to you is when you're battling the flesh the most. When you're exhausted. When you're tired. Whenever you've been through something. Whenever you spent time in counseling or Bible study or meditating on the Word of God, and you've become worn out through the week, guess when the temptation is going to become hardest? While you're tired. While you're beat up. It's going to first appeal to your flesh. Oh, you're tired. You know, you've had a long week. Why not? Pour a glass or two or four. You deserve it. You know, she's not providing what you need. You deserve it. Why not? Are you not underpaid and overworked? 
Forget that boss. Forget this, forget that. Go do what you want to do. There are God-sized dreams in every single one of you. Go and fulfill it. You deserve it. The very first approach is going to be to your flesh. Because that's the most tangible and fastest thing where we can get some quick, quick hits of happiness. So fast. Hungry, tired, boom. Worn out, needing a little satisfaction. You know what's even worse is now that temptation's sitting right in your pocket. And no one would even know. No one would even know. She loves me more than my wife does. Why not? Why shouldn't I talk to her? That's the very first appeal that temptation is going to come your way. And that's the very first appeal that Satan uses. Jesus, I know you're hungry. Why don't you make some bread, bro, if you are the Son of Man? So that's his very first appeal. So his first appeal both to Jesus and to you is, I will show you your weakness. And I'm going to use it. This is exactly what he said to Eve in the garden. Did, you, did God not say that you may eat of any tree in the garden? His desire is to show you your weakness. You have a problem here. So why not indulge? Maybe God created you this way. It's okay to do these things. He will show you your weakness and exploit it. So the question becomes then, becomes this, what weaknesses in your flesh are available for the enemy to use against you? What fruits are in your life that he can point to and say, hey, look how awesome that is. Don't you want to buy it? What fruit needs to be guarded so you do not eat, though you are tempted to do so? It's there. It's a part of your life. But did he say not to eat of it? Yes. So what are you going to do about it? If there's a sin in your life, that's just fruit that he can point to and say, Hey, why don't you have a bite? You visit this tree once a week, twice a week, every single day. Why don't you just keep coming back and eating from it? What fruits are in your life that need to be guarded? Maybe it would have been a good idea for Adam to build a, a fence around it, just to make sure that he didn't get there. Sometimes you're going to have to build some guards in your life. So that way you, you can't be persuaded by it. He's given you that ability. Did you know that? Beforehand, before in him, you were a slave to Pharaoh. You were a slave in Egypt, and you had to do it. But Christ redeemed you. Now Egypt's being pulled out of you. You don't have to listen to Egypt anymore because you've been removed from it. And this is where we're going to see the reality that, of, of Christ being able to overcome this appeal to the flesh and what it means for you. Because these temptations are going to come your way over and over and over again in this life. If you think what you're going through right now is difficult and hard... Overcome? Guess what's around the corner? There's another fruit. Oh. 
but the testing of it produces steadfastness in your life. Eventually, you're going to get to a point where you're like, you know what, I don't need that fruit. It doesn't even look appealing to me anymore. Satan, you've lost. I don't need it. Does it look delicious? No, not really, because I know the outcome of that. I know the outcome of wanting Egypt. I get plagues. So I don't want that. This is the reality, starting, we're going to Romans 8. Romans 8. One of the most beautiful chapters in all of the scriptures on the reality in the battle between the flesh and the spirit. The flesh and the spirit. The very first thing that we see at the starting of Romans 8 is there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know what that means? You don't have to listen to the serpent tell you what you did in your past again. You remember, that's who you were. Christ condemns sin in the flesh, which we're about to read. Condemnation means those sins that you still are, are battling with and struggling with, who have been overcome by grace and mercy, do not stick to you anymore. The same way that when Adam and Eve, the very moment they took the bite, it was over. They were condemned and they remained condemned. But redemption would come, as was promised at the end of chapter 3. Continuing on. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free, Christ Jesus, from the law of sin and death. Egypt does not reside in you anymore. You are not stuck there anymore. It does not stay there. You have been set free by Christ. Verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. You and I could not abide. We could not help but go and eat of those trees we weren't supposed to eat from. Our flesh caused us to be able to do that. Our flesh was the reason that we appealed to the, or to the fruit in the first place. Our flesh, as Romans 7 says, sin waits in our members, waiting to be executed, waiting for sin to be finalized in our life. James 1 says that sin... Whenever we say that we're tempted, it's tempted by our own selfish desires that whenever we receive it, conceives, gives birth to death. Continuing on. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. What was it that the Israelites did in the wilderness? Man, I love that fish. I love those melons we had back in Egypt. Oh man, we had leeks and onions. and This was awesome. I remember that. I like that. But they forgot about this enslavement, the death, the overbearing Pharaoh who killed their children. They, for some reason, just overlooked it and said, you know what, those leeks were pretty good. Can I have some of that? So their minds were set on things of the flesh. They weren't thinking of higher things. Whenever we are in the flesh, our minds are set on those very things. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, 
Those are setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. Not anger, not sexual immorality, drunkenness, hatred. The total opposite. You have been set free from this to be able to do this. Your ability to do this was not even possible in the flesh. But Christ has redeemed you. You now walk according to the Spirit. So now you can do those things, those good works. Let's continue on. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is on the flesh is hostile to God. Why did Eve think the fruit was good looking? She saw it was appealing to her eyes, and it was one to make wise. She saw the very thing and said, you know what? To be like God? Yeah, I'll take a piece of that. Hand it over. She was hostile. She did not submit to God at all, and neither did Adam. Adam heard the whole thing and stood by and was like, I'm not going to do anything about this. That was his failure. His job was to guard the garden, and he didn't. His job was to crush the head of the serpent, but he didn't do it. But there's one who was coming, who has come to do that very thing. So that way you don't get ensnared by him again. It was hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Well, I know some unsafe friends of mine that do some nice stuff. Is that righteousness? Is what the fruit that they're producing in their life considered good? If the ground is tainted, is the fruit any good? No. If there's poison ground, you can't eat the apples or the fruit that comes from poison ground. The nature of the soil has to change for the fruit to be good. So even those people are like, I lived a pretty good life. I did some good stuff in my life. I gave away things and loved on things. But is the soil cursed? Yeah, it looks like that. But the people who eat of it, are they getting any benefit from it? No. The soil's been cursed. Sin in the flesh had to be condemned. The dust that you have on your body that caused you death had to be removed. It's another reason why I love baptism. To wash it away. To wash away the dust. <laughs> it's beautiful. Let's continue on. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Cannot. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin... The Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Who dwells in you. The reality is that Jesus overcame that temptation. In the midst of the moment, whenever Satan first appealed to the flesh, realized, oh, my bad, this guy isn't going to be taken down so easy. But Christ has given you that ability. By him overcoming the temptation of the flesh, 
He condemned sin in the flesh at Calvary. Dunzo, over. Now you have the ability to not walk according to the flesh again, but walk according to the Spirit. Does that mean you're not going to ever sin again? Absolutely not. That means when you do sin, you're not condemned by it. You can be forgiven it. That means the nature of who you are has changed. So when you go do good works, it bears good and beneficial fruit. The fruit is good because it comes from the Spirit, not from the cursed ground. Christ condemns sin in the flesh, which gives you ability to overcome those temptations of the flesh. Those simple times when you're tired and you're like, I want to give in to this, you have the ability to say, no, I'm not. I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going to go for a run. I'm going to listen to a Bible verse. I'm going to, I don't know, play baseball with my kids. I'm going to divulge from those things because I don't need it. I don't need it. He's given you the ability to overcome those things. So why don't you use it? Why don't you use it? That's the very first thing that Satan appealed to Jesus in the midst of the wilderness. Number two. The next was the appeal to authority. The appeal to authority. We see this in verses 5 through 8. And the devil took him up. And this is probably one of the most profound pieces of text regarding this temptation. Because I want you to listen to what the devil says. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms in the world in a moment. And said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. It will all be yours. Verse 8. Did I stop at 7? Yeah, stop at 7. Okay. Verse 8. He continues on. It is written, and Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So his response to authority was with authority. We are called to worship this morning with Psalm 24. Whose is the earth and the inhabitants thereof? The Lord's. So what makes Satan think that he has the authority to give this away? What makes him think that this is mine? And if you worship me, I'll give it to you. His appeal was this. I can give you whatever you want in this world. Whatever you want. Outside of the cross. Do you want the kingdoms, Jesus? You can have the kingdoms. I'll give it over to you. <coughs> Do you want the glory of those kingdoms and nations? I'll give them to you. All here. All tangible. All going towards death and destruction. All empires die. All kings die. But he sits there and looks at Jesus and says, I'll give you what you want without the cross. You can have the things that you're desiring, but circumvent the hard part. You can have the gain without the strain. You can have the gain without the strength. The cross, there was nothing. He was saying, I will give you all of this. This is what you're after, right? To redeem it. You can have it all, but worship me. And you don't have to go through that hard part. 
He's showcasing the appeal to authority. He's like, you want this? I'm the one to come to to get it. Now, I don't know if you guys are conspiracy theorists like me, but I believe that this is what people do in Hollywood. They come and say, this is what I want. And that's exactly what they get. But what is it that man can gain the whole world and lose his soul? But anyway, sidetracked. But this is the authority. The dust that he's been eating, I can give you dust. If you want dust, I'll give you dust. I got plenty. I eat it all the days of my life. So his appeal to Jesus was this. I know what you're after, and I've got a better way of getting to it without the hard stuff. I know the Father wants you to go to the cross, but I can give it to you without it. And what was the appeal? What was the thing that Satan wanted out of Jesus? Just worship me. Now, did Satan actually want the Son of God to worship him? No. He wanted him to fall. Because he knows where he's going. All he wanted to do was to cause Jesus to trip up and be like, huh, the plan failed. You're not going to crush my head, bro. I know you want this, and I'm willing to give it to you without the cross. Does that sound like a good idea? He was appealing to authority. And this is where Adam and Eve fell. This is where Adam and Eve got it wrong. Whenever the serpent looked at him and says, you will be like God, knowing good and evil, Adam and Eve said, okay, that sounds pretty good. I mean, we can be authority? We get to be our own deity where we define what's right and wrong, that we get to have subjection under us, this dominion? Because God gave them the dominion. They had everything. Everything that God created says, this is yours, and you may enjoy it, except for the one fruit. And the serpent comes along and says, hey, you know that one fruit is the only thing separating you and God? Have a bite. Be a God yourself. And you have the dominion already. You have the kingdom. Why don't you be God? Replace him. So the appeal was to the authority. And that's where Adam and Eve got it wrong. They subdued God's authority and said, I'm going to define it myself. I'll partake it, and it's not mine. Was it theirs to take and theirs to give? No. That's the lie. Satan did not have the authority to give kingdoms away. Because he subjected to whom? The Lord himself. He subjected to the Lord himself. No one could serve two masters. Matthew 6. Matthew 6. Jesus tells, a, tell, uh, tells a, a parable to the people to showcase this reality. You can't have earth and heaven too. You can't have Egypt and the blessings of Israel too. You can't serve both. It's either one or the other. The parable. Starting in verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, which is exactly what Satan wanted to do. Look at all this stuff. Look at all these kingdoms and glory and honor and awe. I'll give it to you. But it all goes to dust. 
Do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where's your heart? Are you in Egypt? Do you like the appeal of Egypt? Do you like what Egypt can give you? Or is it in the promised land? You've never seen the promised land, by the way. But your hope's in it. So where's your heart? The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. And if your eye is bad, the whole body will be full of darkness. What was the very thing that Eve thought was appealing about the fruit? She said it was desirable to the eye. He's like, yeah, that's what I want. If the eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. He cannot, you cannot serve God and money. And oh, I love how Jesus says money here. Because do you know what money gets you in this world? Whatever you want. Do you want power? Do you want authority? Do you want king? Do you want to be a... Whatever you want. That's the one thing that can be offered to you so you can achieve it. I love that he uses that because that pricks at our very nature. We want it so bad. I want more of it. I'm never satisfied. So how am I going to get it? Oh, Egypt's got gold. Sweet. I want to do some of that. But I love that he serves it. You cannot serve two masters. It's not possible. You cannot des have desires of the flesh to overthrow the authority of God and also serve God at the same time. You cannot please God in the flesh. You cannot. But you can in the spirit. The ability has been given to you to have authority in the spirit. To be able to walk this wilderness guided, protected, sealed, and the ability to overcome. The authority dwells in you. So you can overcome the devil. Resist him and he will flee from you. That's all you have to do. Gone. Do you want to know why? Because Satan's authority is nothing. The prince of the power of the air. What is air? Can you bottle air up and sell it? Can you, well, I'm not going to get into physics. You can't jump into a cloud or jump into air and be like, this is mine now. The prince of the power of the air is the power of nothing. It's vanity. It's appearance. Ecclesiastes. You grasp at it as an illusion. There's nothing there. That's what Satan has to offer you. Do you want riches and power? Go for it. Worship me. Okay. Wait. What is this? It doesn't work. He has no authority over you. He has no authority to give you anything. But Christ has given you authority to overcome him. The appeal to authority. 
Satan's appeal is to give away what he has available to him. Material things. Anything to keep you on earth and thinking about this place. In the same way that Egypt seeks to draw you back to enslave you, so does temptation seek to bring you to the dust and keep you there. That you may perish in the dust. And this is the reality, Romans 1, this is the reality for those who seek to appeal to the wrong authority. This was the failure of Adam and Eve. Romans 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. That is, it was written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Their flesh prevents them from understanding that truth. They suppress it. You know what? I'm not going to surely die. Give me the fruit. You might be like, God, give me the fruit. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Would you say that's exactly what Adam and Eve did? Absolutely. They became futile in their thinking. Claiming to be wise. Interesting. Isn't that the way that the fruit was described in the garden? To make one wise? Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds, and animals, and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped the, served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Whenever Satan comes to attack you, the appeal of authority is that very thing. He's seeking to make yourself think wise. You're wise. You read enough books. You qualify. You know this is not wrong. Who is God? Who does he know? There's so much appeal to authority. This is exactly where Adam and Eve tripped up. There was, it was way too much to take. This idea of gaining without the strength. Gaining without having to deal with it. Listening to the light. You will not surely die. So you can have what you want without the consequences. That's why Adam and Eve fell. And that's where we fall every single time. We may get past the initial temptation of the flesh, right? Something pops in our head, nope, scratch it off. Nope, scratch it off. But it may get to a point whenever you think yourself wise in an area. Oh, I won't get caught. Is it really wrong, though? I'm not hurting anybody? I, 
I deserve this. This is mine. The appeal to authority will get you every time. The minute where you think in your mind that you've got it, you're under control, that it's all yours, and it's to your glory, is the minute you lose it. It's the minute you fall. It's the minute you take the bite thinking, I will not die. God's not going to punish me for this. That was too much for humanity to take. And they gave in. And lastly, this is where Jesus gets it right. Adam and Eve didn't even make it this far. Number three, the question of nature. The question of nature. Verses 9 through 13, and I love this ending. This is where Jesus not only gets it right, but his glory is revealed to the one who needs to know who it is he stands before. Verse 9, and he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their heads you will, be, you will bear up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil, the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This was the last hurrah. The very last position. Because he got all of mankind with the first two points. Flesh and authority. Now it's about nature. Okay, okay. You overcame those two, Jesus. Alright, who are you really? Because what came after the fall of man? The prophet of his promises. That there was one coming who was going to crush the serpent's head. So now, Satan's kind of got his back in the corner. Alright, okay. Who are you really? So he decides to spout some truth to Jesus about himself, about the Messiah himself. The scriptures were true. They were not tainted. He just said, hey, prove to me who you are. I want to know who you are. Prove it to me. His last chance to get him to slip up. Prove to me who you are. And what was Jesus' response Thou shalt not tempt the Lord your God. Who is Jesus saying he is? Satan's sitting there appealing. Hey, show me who you are. The scriptures say this about you. Just show me. If this is true, do it. So he prove who you are. And his response is, you shall not test the Lord your God. Who's the one being tested? Is it Jesus in this moment? No. Satan is looking to appeal to him. Prove it. Prove it. Prove it to me, Jesus. Jesus had nothing to prove to him. Because he overcame the authority. You are not to test the Lord your God. Satan wanted the test. He wanted Jesus to prove who he was. The Lord's like, no. I don't have to show anything to you. Because you know who's standing before you? Your authority. Why do you think the devil fleed after that? He's on the run. The next portion of Genesis 3 is now fulfilled. He's there. It's head crushing time. Every 
step that Jesus makes in the wilderness doing his miracles, pushing back the kingdom of darkness, is one step closer to that head crushing. Why in the world do you think the devil would flee after that moment? He's like, the Lord is here. Jesus has nothing to prove. He is the Lord. And Satan, you should be testing me. <laughs> you know who I am. Adam did not get this far. So Satan sought to see if Jesus is the one by whom his head would be crushed. Jesus had nothing to prove to Satan as the works that the Father will do through him would bear witness. And that is the beautiful part of what we're getting ready to get into. After this moment is all Jesus' works. That the kingdom of darkness is constantly being pushed back. The blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the demons are cast out. So Jesus was proving who he was the very minute past this moment. The ministry starts. The Lord is here. The kingdom of heaven is here. Satan has no more hold. Demons gone. Blindness overcame. Deafness gone. Healing the paralytic. He proves himself by his works. Because he proven to Satan, here I come. The cross is next. I know you tried to get it without it, but it's coming. And all along the way, I'm proving to you who I am. You don't get to test me. Because I have the authority over you. The glory of God is revealed in the working of Christ's ministry. That last question, that last temptation, bounced right back on Satan. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord your God. I'm here. Get out of the way. You know what's coming. Jesus is both the Son of Man and the Son of Heaven. We find this in 2 Corinthians 5. This is the reality of what you get in Christ Jesus regarding this very thing about your nature being changed. First, or 2 Corinthians 5, chapter, or starting in verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, that means that flesh that you had once before is gone. I don't regard you for your past sins. I don't regard you for the flesh that you have on you. We don't regard you that way. Why? Continue on. Even though we were once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Why is that? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Do you want to know why that word is so pivotal? It's not just poetic for you. That word draws us all the way back to the garden. That God created man, and man fell. Not able to pick himself up again. You are now an Adam, and you need to die. Your flesh needs to be removed. Christ has brought that available to you. That your death in Adam erases new creation in Christ. That means you're not an Adam anymore. That means you're not condemned like Adam anymore. That means you're not an appeal to the Adam like Adam anymore. That you don't have to succumb to the temptation of the flesh. And you don't have to succumb to the idea of authority. Because the authority 
the Lord himself dwells in you now. You are now a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Behold, the new has come. Continuing on. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ Jesus was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Do you hear that? He overlooked your trespasses. Everything you did in Adam, he overlooked. Because now you're in Christ. Old is gone. Adam is gone. He is no longer attached to you. He overlooked them because now you're raising Christ Jesus and his righteousness. Let's continue on. Not counting their trespasses against him. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. For God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Adam, you're in sin. In Christ, you have his righteousness. In Adam, you are dead flesh, condemned to die. But in Christ, you are dead to the flesh because the flesh has been condemned in him. You may now live for all of eternity. Adam, you were cut off from the garden. Christ returned you to it. We have been given the endemic mandate through the Great Commission, and this is one of the most beautiful portions about this whole thing, about the reality that you are a new creation. Because the commandment that was given to Adam at the very beginning, beginning is given to you now in Disciples of Christ. Go forth and multiply. Go, therefore, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all I commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The very same commandment given to Adam. Go forth and mount, multiply Adam. Fill the earth with my glory. Failed in Adam. Failed in Eve. They could no longer fulfill it. And that's why it says that sin covered the earth and their minds filled with wickedness every moment. They failed at their, their mandate. But in Christ, he's doing the work. He's the one raising. He's the one cleansing. He's the one redeeming. He's the one reconciling. We get to participate. This is where heaven and earth meet. And we now have been given a mandate to go and multiply ourselves. Because we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. To bring the dead back to God. A new creation. Your nature has changed, Christian. That you has gone. Here's the three questions for conclusion I want to take away for today. What fruit seeks to draw in you? What appeal is made to your flesh in temptation? Are there fruits in your life that Satan can use to point to? Say, why don't you go take that? Is there fruit in your life that's forbidden that you see appealing? Beautiful to the eyes? is, what are you going to do about that? If 
you're in Adam, you're just going to go eat it. But if you're in Christ, you abstain. You don't have to. So you need to search and discover the fruits that are there that God says, do not touch, do not taste, that you desire to go to every single day. Number two, where does your identity lie? What authority rules your life? What authority do you abide by? Is it yourself? Because Satan loves to make it about you. He tries not to keep it on him. He'd much rather you serve yourself than him. Because it's so much easier for you to worship yourself than to worship a little guy with horns and a tail. He can make you a god to yourself. When you look in the mirror, you see yes. So whose identity or whose authority do you identify with? What is your identity? Number three, are you a new creation? Are you an Adam or are you in Jesus? Are you a dead creation? Dust? Not able to bear anything but thorns and thistles? Or are you in Christ a new creation? Created for good works to bear good fruit. Where is your identity lie? Great is thy faithfulness. That Christ would not take the easy route. Nor succumb to the very thing we are so prone to do. But endure the cross to defeat sin and death. The works of the devil. And usher us back into communion with God. What Adam failed to do. Christ is faithful to fulfill. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are faithful. Christ endured the cross for our stead. That he took that mandate, that commandment, and went right to the cross. He was not detoured. Though he walked in the likeness of flesh, flesh did not overcome him. There was no appeal to Jesus that could overcome him. His eyes were fixed. To reconcile all things back to him. His eyes were fixed upon the cross. His eyes were fixed upon Calvary. That he was there. He was going to remain faithful. That he was to fulfill the covenant mandate set by you. Unlike Adam who fell. Didn't even make it three days. That you carried you overcame, you endured, and you fulfilled. So we rejoice. We sing, great is thy faithfulness, because of the reality that you are faithful. You were not deterred from the left or to the right, but your eyes were fixed. And we receive the eternal blessing because of your faithfulness. So may we constantly sing, Great is your faithfulness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.